brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello, I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. In this week's episode, we're looking at a trillion dollar global problem, addiction. It's thought that more than a quarter of a billion people worldwide are addicted to drugs or alcohol alone. But what drives them towards a potentially lethal habit? And what are the governments doing to try and cure addiction, stem the tide, in other words? First up, I spoke to Alexis Gustil, director of the European Monitoring Centre for Drugs and Drug Addiction, about the changing nature of the problem in Europe. I would say in few words that... Uh... The, the, there has been a quite interesting evolution of the drug situation in the European Union over the last five to eight years, I would say. Uh, what we observe today is an overall increase in the uh, global production of any kind of drugs, uh, which results in terms of impact on the European drug market in a high availability of any kinds of substances, but also a high level of purity and potency. And this is reflected, for instance, by the increase in the number of seizures that are made through large shipments that have been intercepted either in uh, big ports in Europe or uh, uh, en route to Europe. Uh, to give you an example, we don't have yet uh, the final figures for last year, but uh, uh, in 2018, there were 181 tons of cocaine seized uh, in the European Union, and there, it was more in 2020. Just to give you uh, an idea, a comparison, uh, 30 years ago, when there was the start of the crack epidemic, it was 100 tons of cocaine. Today, only through the large shipments, it was 181 tons in 2018 for cocaine. But there were 668 tons of cannabis that have been seized. Uh, and heroin, uh, around 10 tons of heroin seized, uh, and for the first time uh, through big shipments, mean containers too. So, situation, the picture is uh, is uh, threatening. Uh, there is a potential risk for the EU, uh, and uh, we also count that more or less 96 million of uh, adults in the EU aged 15, 64 years old have tried an illicit drug in their lifetime. And we have 1.2 million of people, more or less, who are in treatment uh, for problems related to heavy or problematic drug use. So uh, that's uh, in a nutshell. Alexis, these are very disturbing statistics indeed, but you talk about the number of seizures. What does that say to you about how much is getting through? Ah, that's, that's the five pound or five dollars or five euros question. And uh, I will disappoint you, I don't have the magic formula to give you the answer. But what we know is that uh, through a convergence of different indicators, uh, you rightly mentioned I spoke only about seizures, but uh, we, we connect, we analyze those data uh, uh, with other, and we cross them with other indicators, uh, which show that uh, there is an increase in the consumption of cocaine use in the EU. There is also which is uh, also quite worrying, uh, some uh, pockets of uh, crack cocaine use that are appearing in Europe, which was uh, uh, not the case five years ago. Uh, even though uh, for crack users, uh, the situation is a bit difficult to measure because as they are not really in treatment. What we have also observed is in an increase uh, in the number of demands for treatment 
of addiction issues related to cannabis, uh, which can be related uh, partly at least to the much higher concentration in THC that is found in cannabis. Um, if you want a comparison at the time of Woodstock Festival or May 68 events in Europe, um, the concentration in THC of, uh, of that cannabis uh, was probably between 4 and 6%. Uh, but today it can go up to 24%. Uh, and in some of the products that are produced uh, in some states in the US that have legalized the recreational use of cannabis, you can find even e-liquids for vaping that contain up to 95% of THC. How would you describe the impact on societies and economies in Europe of addiction? Well, first thing to say is that uh, the, the EU is the unique region in the world for more than 20 years that has designed uh, collective strategies uh, joining the efforts of uh, the 28 and now 27 uh, European member states uh, together with the European Commission and European agencies like us, the European Drugs Agency and Europol, uh, to, to develop strategies and develop joint efforts. And it, it gives results. It, uh, it shows results. For instance, if you look at the dramatic decrease of the numbers of, of uh, HIV and AIDS, uh, drug-related cases over the last 20, 25 years. That's one of the uh, excellent results of those joint efforts. If you see the increase in the availability of uh, opioid substitution treatment that passed from 35, 40,000 places in treatment uh, in the early 90s to a total of uh, around 650,000 people who are in treatment for opioid substitution treatment, it shows that the member states have made joint efforts and they have also developed and established a good response capacity, which is not the case in other regions in the world. Certainly, there is a concern and a, a close monitoring uh, based on the work that we oh. are doing, among others, and the member states uh, coordinate their actions and for that purpose, well, that, that there is, is a special... That, that is very good news that you have this policy and strategy, but is that strategy winning against addiction in Europe? I think winning is, a, is not the exact term that we are seeking. I think if you want to eradicate or if someone pretends to eradicate completely the drug problem, I think this is not the way we are looking at the things today if we want to be realistic. It's also important to be clear about uh, uh, having political objectives or policy objectives that are feasible. And the EU strategy on drugs that was recently adopted in December by all EU member states shows uh, and is based on the results and the evaluation of the previous one. So, yes, in Europe, you, in the European Union, we evaluate and we monitor the objectives and we record significant results. Now the situation is change, changing and is bringing new challenges. This is why we needed to regularly update the strategy. Now we are working on a new action plan for the next five years period. Do you only lead a European initiative or do you um, try and bring in other partners from around the world? Well, uh, first of all, we, we have, uh, of course, our mandate covers the EU, uh, but we are working very closely with the countries from southeastern Europe. 
with also all the countries that are neighboring the EU, but more broadly with other regions of the world and with other international organizations. On the top of that, the EU has established a, a, a dialogue on drugs with some countries and the last 22nd of January, for the first time, took place the EU-China dialogue on drugs. And what did that involve, the EU-China dialogue? But uh, uh, the, the topics that were discussed were starting first on the sharing information of the last trend on the drug situation, uh, both in the European Union and in China. And uh, on that uh, specific point, I was uh, asked to make a presentation on the EU situation. What was very interesting was to see that uh, we shared the same challenges with China. In particular, uh, the colleagues from China explained that they have a real concern with uh, the increase and in the raise of synthetic drugs and new psychoactive substance, as it is the case also for the European Union. So China and the EU coming together uh, in the war on drugs? Yeah, they come together and at least uh, establish a very high-level dialogue on those issues, acknowledging that there are differences in the policies and the strategies, but also there are common endeavors. And uh, it was agreed that uh, the dialogue will uh, deepen, will continue, and uh, the next uh, annual meeting will take place, hopefully, uh, in physical presence of all the participants next year in Brussels. Alexis Gustil, many thanks to you for joining us on the agenda. Well, we heard there about the EU's plans to cooperate with China to tackle the addiction issue. Let's get some more detail from China. I'm joined now by Shan Chuhua, the acting director of the International Cooperation Division of the Office of China National Narcotics Control Commission. Shan, what kind of cooperation do you have with other countries and regions such as Europe? As you know, China is one of the uh, signatory countries to the, uh, uh, the three UN drug control conventions. And we are firmly supporting and uh, actively participating in the uh, international drug control efforts. We um, uh, carried out our uh, cooperation with our foreign counterparts. Uh, we have signed 47 bilateral cooperation documents with uh, 38 foreign counterparts, including the European Union. As you know, we have signed the uh, governmental agreement on precursor chemical control cooperation with the EU. And we have uh, carried out um, uh, international cooperations with the uh, um, foreign counterparts in all aspects in the field of drug control. Uh, for example, we exchange drug control policies and strategies, and we share drug-related crime intelligence, and we carry out case cooperations and we also share the best practices of drug demand reduction and so on. That's an amazing level of cooperation with, with, with so many countries and on so many different levels. But can you give me a, an example of how the cooperation works to help beat addiction? Um, uh, as you know, uh, China and EU, we just uh, have launched the uh, first China-EU um, drug control dialogue last month. And uh, during that dialogue, we exchanged drug control policies so that we can learn from each other um, the uh, best practices taken back in both uh, sides. 
And how does China treat uh, illegal drug users? Uh, do you have any uh, practical measures you can tell us to help them um, beat their addictions? Yeah. Um, according to the uh, Chinese laws, uh, drug uh, addicts should receive treatment. And the Chinese government will provide um, services, including um, voluntary treatment, uh, community-based treatment, uh, community-based rehabilitation, and we also provide methadone maintenance treatment, which is called uh, MMT, and which is uh, commonly used in the world. I think the uh, measures provided by the governments could uh, help drug addicts to quit from uh, drugs, um, because through those comprehensive uh, measures, um, the drug addicts, they, they, they will get the uh, um, assistance in uh, physical detoxification and also be helped in their uh, psychological uh, rehabilitations. And we also have some kinds of services in uh, the uh, re-employment for the drug addicts so that they can um, have a healthy and normal social life which is also known as the uh, uh, reintegration back to the society. In the European Union, and, and in certainly Britain, we have a saying about prevention is better than cure. W would, would you agree with that? Totally agree. And, and how do you work to achieve that? We think uh, prevention is uh, crucial in the drug control efforts. And in China, we have a national drug control law. And according to that law, the Chinese government uh, has always taken the uh, preventive education uh, to the whole people as the, uh, uh, the most priority stage. Uh, that is the, the, the key strategy in our drug control uh, efforts. Uh, we have uh, carried out extensively publicity and uh, education among the whole people in particularly the youth. Uh, for example, in China, we have uh, um, um, developed a uh, online pre a drug preventive education platform, uh, in particular for the, uh, for the uh, uh, school students. Um, after two years of running, this platform has attracted um, for more than uh, 96 million students to register. And, and I think with our uh, concrete efforts, uh, the public awareness um, and the ability to refuse to say no to drugs has been um, promoted significantly. Um, the number of newly discovered drug users in China um, has dropped down year by year. Shan Chua, many thanks to you for joining us on the agenda. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Of course, as well as the economic cost, all forms of addiction take a huge personal and mental toll on millions of people around the world. Erin Carr is a former heroin addict and author of the book Strung Out, One Last Hit and Other Lies That Nearly Killed Me. She joins me now from New York. Um, Erin, in your book, you talk extremely candidly about your own struggles uh, with drugs over years. 
how did you first become an addict? You know, I like to tell people that I think for a lot of people who struggle with addiction, the addiction is there before the drugs come in. And what I mean by that is that, you know, there's certainly plenty of people who in their teenage years or in their early 20s experiment with drugs who don't become addicted. For me, this addiction started very early. At the age of eight, um, in the middle of a, a panic attack, which at the time I didn't know was a panic attack, I reached for a bottle of pills that was in our medicine cabinet. It had been there a long time. It was an expired bottle of painkillers, which I didn't know what they were at the time. I just knew that there was a label on there that said may cause drowsiness, and I wanted that drowsiness. So that was the first time that I reached for a drug. Um, from that point forward, I would pilfer pills from the medicine cabinets of my friend's parents, from relatives. And when I was 13 and adolescence was hitting, I tried heroin for the first time with my boyfriend. And you went on to become uh, a full heroin addict. And yes. you obviously realized over the years that you had become addicted and mm -hmm. you tried to get clean uh, several mm -hmm. times. Um, why do you think it was so difficult for you to kick your habit? You know, I think that that it's difficult, especially for people who haven't struggled with addiction, to understand why you can't just say no, or if you have negative consequences continually, why you can't stop. I think there are a couple of reasons. Obviously, with um, opiates like heroin, there's a physical dependency that occurs, which while you're in active addiction drives the addiction. But the you know you wonder why people keep relapsing. There is what I call a shame cycle that happens. And this doesn't just happen with addiction, but this happens with all sorts of sort of self-destructive behaviors where we have these belief systems about ourselves that often are formed when we're very young, that we're not good enough, that if people really saw who we were, that they wouldn't love us. That's sort of that base primal fear that if, if people knew this X factor, they wouldn't love me. I had that from very early on. You are, uh, thank heavens, now very firmly clean. Mm -hmm. How did you kick your habits? Well, you know, as you, you know, in the book, as you know, and, and I speak about a lot, I relapsed, I don't even know how many times, I relapsed con constantly. <laughs> and um, I, at 28 years old, became pregnant, and it wasn't a planned pregnancy. Against all better judgment, I decided to have the baby, and I was using at the time, I found a doctor who was willing to detox me, because at the time, what the protocol was, to, was to put um, pregnant women on methadone, methadone maintenance. Yeah. There's a whole industry built up around the treatment of addiction mm -hmm. and addicts. Mm -hmm. You talked a little earlier about the shame factor and not yeah. enough perhaps is understood about the shame factor. Do we understand in 2021 enough about addiction? No. <laughs> I mean, of course, I, you know, I think that there's, there will still be more and more to uncover. That said, I think things are moving in the right direction. I think that globally, that there has been a shift in the way that public health policy addresses the issue and law enforcement addresses the issue. You've certainly seen this across Europe, and we are seeing this in the U.S. now. I've sat on many panels with public health officials and law enforcement, and their policies have shifted away from punitive measures 
to helping people stay alive and access treatment. We still have a long way to go, but we're moving in the right direction. Uh, the demographic for addiction has also changed dramatically. We, mm -hmm. We've heard a fair few stories of young people, especially in the 60s, 70s, uh, becoming addicted to drugs of, of various types. Today, the big problem is opioid addiction. Yes. And it's not necessarily young people, it's middle-aged people seeking yes. fentanyl and prescriptions. And there's an opioid epidemic across America. That must yes. be a very frightening epidemic. I mean, it's very frightening. And, and part of the reason it's so frightening is that with, with these drugs like fentanyl, they're so much more potent than street heroin that people are dying at a much faster rate. You know, and, and I think that when we look at treating addiction and treating the opioid epidemic, the very first thing that we need to focus on is keeping people alive because we can't, people aren't going to recover if they're dead, right? That's the number one priority, which is why things like Narcan training, that's the, the um, drug that's used to reverse an overdose, why Narcan training is so important. In most major cities in America, you can access Narcan without a prescription. I know many people who carry Narcan with them who are not struggling with addiction, but they do that in case they come across somebody who is in the middle of an overdose, which in a major city you often run into on the street. I've seen people recover from from places that you thought they could never recover from. But what, 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 what surprises me, I think, Erin, mm -hmm. um, is the demographic, that middle-aged people, middle-class people, you're not talking people living on the streets no. um, or disadvantaged people. You're talking quite well-off people for this opioid addiction. What has caused that? You know, I think there's a combination of factors. I think one thing that we're not recognizing is that I think that there were a lot of... there were more people like me when I was using drugs <laughs> than we knew about. And, you know, a big part of the reason, you know, the first 10 years of my addiction from 13 to 23, I hid it from nearly everybody in my life because I hid behind financial privilege. I hid behind being able, because of that financial privilege, I was attending prep schools. I went to a good college. I was a horseback rider. I had all these things sort of covering up what was going on. When pharmaceutical companies introduced new drugs like Oxycontin to the market and they were really promoted um, to doctors as, as being, you know, there was a, obviously we know about the lawsuits and the controversy that they were being promoted as being non-addictive and whatnot. There was a flood of opiates into the market that were, were finding their way to sort of like a new batch of people. But I think that we look at like, Okay, so they're saying this is really sort of a hidden epidemic. Yeah, and I, I think that part of it is, you know, it's not just that they were prescribed an opiate. I think painkillers can be very effective. They're used to treat pain, but people who are struggling with addiction are using them to treat pain. They're using them to treat emotional pain. And it goes back to sort of, you know, this what we talked about earlier in regards to shame and sort of long-term aftercare. I think that, you know, at the baseline of all of this is that we have globally a mental health system from country to country that is not very effective and that we need to be looking at the mental health and well-being of people as equally important as their physical well-being. That's a very good point. Erin Carr, many thanks indeed for joining us on the agenda. Thank you so much for having me. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Agenda podcast. 
Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. You can also find us on CGTN Europe Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Until next week, goodbye. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge, and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.